Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, Pastor Eli James here. This is Eurofolk Radio Restoration Hour, Saturday, February 17th, 2024. Okay, and the subject of today's show is the fact that the McGuffey readers, which were the staple of Christian education in America in the 19th century, have been sort of quietly dispensed with, okay? And it occurred to me, hey, wait a minute, what? What's going on here? And we can see, well, probably the the arrival of the Frankfurt School, which is uh, German Jews, that came to America to Columbia University and started preaching, you know, mocking Christianity, uh, ridiculing it, and making it uncool, you know, starting, I think, uh, in 1945, uh, I forget what year they actually came here, here to America, but they stayed for quite a long time. And in the 1960s, th- this practice continued, the so-called cultural revolution of the 1960s with LBJ's influence on the, the educational system, uh, taking... You know, mainstream uh, Christian society, uh, again, mo- mocking it and uh, re- creating racial integration, etc., etc. So there was a, an ongoing change in our culture going all the way back, well, obviously, to about 1900 with the in- institution of the Schofield Reference Bible. But it occurred to me, well, let me find out, what the, is there a historical work about this that is worth looking at. And I've actually found a couple of them, but one of them is not online. It's available only as a download. And I'm going to quote from it. And, uh, you know, I hit pay dirt, actually. <laughs> I hit pay dirt. And this article is entitled, McGuffey and the Jews. So who do you think is responsible for the elimination of the McGuffey readers which were the staple of American Christian education for children for, well, well, 100 years or more. Who got rid of it? What happened to it? Why is there no um, you know, knowledge about how and what happened to the McGuffey readers? So anyway, this is McGuffey and the Jews, an assessment of the Baldwin thesis by Ronald R. Stockton. Presented at the Social Science Colloquium Series, University of Michigan, Dearborn, October 8, 2008. And he starts out by talking about Henry Ford. Henry Ford was a great man, an industrialist, an innovator, and an educator. He was also a bigot. Okay, so I think you know where where this uh, opinion is coming from. And uh, already accused, in the very first sentence, second sentence actually, accused Henry Ford of being a bigot, and so we're going to get a a full dose of quote-unquote anti-Semitism from Henry Ford and others. Scholars have no definitive explanation of where these beliefs originated, although many point to political influences during Ford's youth as possible causes. And overarching xenophobia in the country as a whole, as well as the tendency for fringe elephants, sorry, elements, to associate Jews with the machinations of powerful banking interests, which purportedly engaged in currency manipulation and fomented economic turmoil. See Nevins and Hill, 1957, Brinkley, 2003. Well, of course, he's mocking this assessment that it's 100% true. So you can see that this author, Ronald R. Stockton, is nothing but a gatekeeper for the Jews. 
by calling Henry Ford names and mocking the idea that uh, the, the Jews are the problem and accusing American people of having a xenophobia. Uh, but we have to understand that the American system is based on protectionism and America, America became the most powerful nation on the face of the earth because of its protectionist policies, protecting American business and uh, not, uh, not protecting other countries, which today is called free trade. No protection whatsoever. But what happens with free trade is the international Jew becomes at, at least the middleman, if not the purchaser, middleman, and uh, seller at the other end. Okay? So, in other words, free trade is totally controlled by Jewry. Always has been, always will be. And it was free trade that was pra- as practiced by Great Britain, which brought the black slaves to America, and which was still being practiced in Britain until they gave up uh, their, their participation in the slave trade. But they, still, they did not give up their participation in free trade. In other words, they still wanted to be the middlemen. The British Empire was the uh, oyster for the international Jew, and they've been promoting free trade all along, whereas protectionism is what made America great, not free trade. Okay, so let's continue. In 2001, Neil Baldwin wrote an informative book entitled Henry Ford and the Jews, The Mass Production of Hate. He showed persuasively that Ford exhibited anti-Semitic views throughout his life and pushed those views into the public arena. For 91 weeks, hmm, 91 weeks, the 91st Psalm? (laughs) For 91 weeks, Ford's newspaper, the Dearborn Independent, featured columns attacking Jews. These essays on American politics were similar in spirit to the notorious protocols of the elders of Zion, which uh, Henry Ford put in the back seat of the motor cars he produced and handed them out free. Every, every buyer gets a free copy of the protocols. They were soon published in four volumes as the International Jew. Ford also flirted with Nazi Germany and made public attacks upon Jews who crossed him. Well, what about Jews attacking Ford? For you know, unknown reasons, because they don't, definitely don't want to talk about what the real reasons are. And, of course, uh, there's an old, I think it's a Polish proverb. The the Jew complains about being evicted from various countries, but the Jew never tells you why. So crocodile tears from the Jew, never they never tell you that it was their banking operations that bankrupted various nations throughout history. And you're not allowed to talk about that. The ADL will see to that and the various Jewish censorship societies. We'll see to that. So uh, they were soon published in four volumes as the International Jew. Ford also flirted with Nazi Germany and made public attacks upon Jews who crossed him. Baldwin's book made a strong case and was well received. So I'm not sure if Ronald R. Stockton is going to defend Baldwin or not. But yeah, this wasn't the main article I was going to read. I put that in the chat room. But let me uh, just go into another paragraph here, because this is a very, very long article. And uh, But never I wanted to, you to understand here that both of these authors are blaming McGuffey's readers, which are the mainstay of Christian education for children, for well over 100 years in America, are being blamed for Henry Ford's quote-unquote anti-Judaism. Continuing with uh, Stockton's analysis here, in the first chapter of McGuffey Land, Baldwin noted that Ford grew up in the Midwest with the McGuffey readers. Throughout his life, he credited them with a, being a key influence on his thinking. The readers emphasized that Protestant Christianity was the only true religion in America and taught a Calvinist structure of reward and punishment in which hard work, thrift, and rugged, and rugged conformity uh, well, that's that's too general. It's not conformity. It's obedience to God's laws, not conformity. The world would be much better off if we conformed to Yahweh's laws. With rugged conformity, 
I've never actually seen those two words put together. Rugged conformity. It's usually rugged individualism, which is actually the white Christian tradition. Rugged individualism, not conformity. The only thing we conform to is the Bible. Unfortunately, the Bible has been very poorly understood throughout history, starting with the Catholic Church and the reinstitution of uh, ridiculous rituals in which the Jews never gave up. Okay, So, a Calvinist structure of reward and punishment in which hard work, thrift, and rugged conformity, there's that odd combination of words, were the ideals. Success was desired, failure was shunned. Well, okay, work hard, be thrifty, you get on with your life. Chances are, unless you uh, are a boozer, or in those days, booze and, I guess, cocaine were the two main um, staples of getting high, and maybe opium, but I don't think there was much opium here in America. That was mainly in Great Britain. They embraced an ordered, rigid, and straightforward view of the world where white was white, and black was black. Oh, for the good old days. <laughs> oh, for those good old days. You know, today we have race mixing. We have white and black all together, and where where the white people get bashed in the back of the head by angry blacks who think that, that the whites are their enemy. Okay, We never were their enemy. The Jews are their enemy, and the Jews are the ones who put these ideas, these anti-white ideas in their minds. One more paragraph here. None of these observations would surprise anyone familiar with the readers. They were, as Westerhoff noted, quote, a mirror of early 19th century America, unquote. They were first written in 1835 and 1836 by an educator who was also a Presbyterian minister and were targeted at the small towns and rural areas of the middle border and frontier Midwest where education was fragmentary and inadequate. Well, who's to say what's inadequate? If you go to a liberal school on either coast, you'll become a commie real quick. Educationally, they were perhaps the most influential force of their age, selling 123 million copies by 1920, 60 million between 1870 and 90. What made Baldwin's book a standout was his argument that Ford learned his anti-Judaism from reading McGuffey. His book jacket reproduced on his website put McGuffey at the very center of Ford's anti-Jewish thinking. Well, the Protestant world was more Jew-savvy in those days. Quote, his early intellectual growth was dominated by the McGuffey Reader, which means it was also dominated by the Bible, because the McGuffey Readers were biblical in orientation. <laughs> okay. His book jacket, uh, reproduced in his website, put McGuffey at the very center of Henry Ford's thinking. His early intellectual growth was dominated by the McGuffey Reader, a popular school book featuring Shakespeare's Shylock. Oh, oh no, 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 that's anti-Jewish. And traditional scriptural interpretations condemning Jews for not accepting Jesus Christ as the Son of God, unquote. How dare? Well, they didn't, and they still don't. I mean, they admit that they never accepted him and never will. So how is this, quote-unquote, anti-Semitic? To support his thesis, Baldwin outlined six readings in McGuffey said to portray Jews in an unfriendly, even hostile light. Okay, oh, you're, I guess you're not permitted to tell the truth about Jews. Baldwin was not the first person to note these readings, but he was the first to link Ford's public behavior so integrally into the readers. As he noted, the charter of the Anti-Defamation League pledged to urge authorities, quote, to remove books which maliciously and scurrilously traduce the character of the Jew, unquote. Well, it's neither malicious nor scurrilous when you tell the truth. His arguments convinced a wide range of readers. Unfortunately, the Baldwin thesis is seriously flawed. This article will explain why. Okay, so the author of this article contests Baldwin's thesis that Henry Ford's so-called anti-Semitism his attempt to expose the Jews for what they really are, comes from McGuffey's readers. So, very interesting uh, premise, but uh, I was amazed at the title of the book, McGuffey and the Jews, 
when I was researching for you know, who, why, and how were the McGuffey readers you know, uh, suppressed, eliminated, because you, you never hear anything about them anymore. They're still available, but uh, only uh, for homeschoolers. Those are about the only people who still use McGuffey's readers. So anyway, uh, getting back to this article here, the Hedgehog Review, and, and the article is entitled The Strange Afterlife of William McGuffey and His Readers. So The Strange Afterlife of William McGuffey and his readers. Okay, so it looks like I'm going to have to uh, use the link in the chat room and open that up because it disappeared. And whenever I open one window, it sometimes eliminates another. So anyway, we're back on track here. This is from the Hedgehog Review. Critical Reflections on Contemporary Culture. And boy, does this contemporary culture need reviewing. And so does uh, uh, all culture that involves Jews. Needs tremendous reviewing. And so, again, the title is The Strange Afterlife of William McGuffey and His Readers. That's a strange title, too. A picture of a bunch of white kids sitting in a classroom looking at the camera, uh, who was uh, probably very near the teacher's podium, okay, or the teacher's desk. And there's a, a statement here, to some Americans, the McGuffey readers represent a lost Eden, by John, Johan rather, and Neem, N-E-E-M. Johan N. Neems is a professor of history at Western Washington University. He's the author of What's the Point of College? (laughs) Yeah, what is the point of college? To become a commie. Seeking Purpose in an Age of Reform. And another book, uh, Democracy's Schools. The Rise of Public Education in America. And to America's detriment, public education has been uh, a total degenerate operation. And unfortunately, McGuffey actually... uh, approved of public education, was instrumental in creating it. However, he'd be turning it in his grave if he realized what it's become. President Trump's Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, has long been an advocate of school choice. In her home state of Michigan, she led the movement to shift funds and students away from public schools, supporting not only charter schools, but voucher programs to allow families to use tax dollars to send their children to religious schools. So why should your tax dollar go to uh, education that you don't approve of? That's taxation without representation. DeVos argues that families, not government, should determine what kind of education to provide children and even challenges the very premise that the public has the right to play a role in the development of the next generation. Now, this is a misstatement because it's not the public that determines what's uh, taught in public education. It's the educators, the educrats. Very good term for those people. None of these educrats have any consideration for the parents of the children that they indoctrinate. So this is a very false statement here. That the public, it's not the public. If the public has anything to say about it, they will disapprove. 99% of the time of what's happening in education today. But the educrats make sure the general public, and especially the parents of the kids in school, do not know what's happening in those schools. They assume they're being taught the three R's, reading, writing, arithmetic, when in fact they're being taught the other three R's, Rockefellers, Rothschilds, and rabbis. Many other Americans share DeVos's belief that public schools no longer represent traditional American values, values that citizens of an older and more religiously observant Protestant America would have taken for granted. That transformation reflects a number of demographic trends, including increased immigration and the related rise of more ethnically and religiously diverse America, all of which is against our Constitution. Perhaps more important than the growing presence of non-Protestant faiths, however, 
is the fact that many Americans are choosing not to attend church at all. Well, why? Because the churches are just as corrupt as the educrats. Yet such changes in demographics and habits came to seem directly threatening only after a series of Supreme Court decisions that, one by one, pushed most expressions of even the most diluted religiosity out of the public schools. Yes, and that is correct. It's the Supreme Court and the government, led by Jews, led by Jews and their ilk, uh, liberals, socialists, communists, etc., Frankfurt School, you name it, and a Jewish uh, dog, dog-wagging dog tail that has shaped us since the 1960s, and it's the 1960s when most of this degeneracy began. As a result of this enforced, quote, secularization, unquote, some Americans began to shun the public school system in order to restore a more faith-centered education for their children. In looking to the past, many evangelical homeschoolers rediscovered the McGuffey readers, the leading grade school readers of the 19th century. This series of primers that education reformer William McGuffey developed for American common schools in the 19th century has been credited, in the words of one historian, with, quote, making the American mind, unquote, just before the Jews had much influence in our society. A bit less grandiosely, but no less significantly, another scholar has asserted that, quote, outside of the King James Bible, the McGuffey readers were the most widely read books in the 19th century America, unquote. But if those readers once represented a consensus of what Protestant America took for granted, today they present an alternative reality. Well, why? What changed? What changed? I hope the uh, author really gets into why and what and how. The original McGuffey readers have been reissued in beautiful hardbound copies by the Christian publisher Mott Media because in the words of the publisher, quote, when God is pushed out, humanism fills the void. And humanism is just another word for communism and socialism. The readers are, quote, an answer for people concerned about humanism in education today, unquote. To some Americans, the series represents a lost Eden, a time when Protestant Christian principles were widely shared and when schools openly cultivated Christian character because this country was founded as a Christian nation. And that was subverted slowly but surely by the Jews who came here in waves, although small waves to begin with, but very large waves starting with the 1890s, possibly already as early as the 1880s. And their influence on our society has been totally negative from day one. The testimonials of contemporary users of the series speak volumes. One homeschooling mother with 15 children extolled the readers because, quote, they were written during a time in our history when biblical Christianity was practiced and endorsed throughout America, unquote. Okay, now we know why America is no longer great, and Donald Trump has failed in making it great again, because he has not emphasized true Christianity. Christianity of the days gone by, when Christians understood that the Jews were Christ killers, reprobates, liars, thieves, and usurers. So whenever you hear uh, an author complaining about anti-Semitism, you never get the story as to why. Why were people so anti-Jewish? No, it's just a mystery that people were anti-Jewish for 1900 years and then all of a sudden became pro-Jewish? How did that happen? Well, it happened by a wave of propaganda. That's how started by the Zionists even before 1900 because the plan to uproot and destroy Christianity in the Western world was begun by none other than Moses Hess, the rabbi that, that taught Karl Marx, and he also influenced uh, the various Zionists, including the Rothschilds, to institute the Israeli state of Kyrgyzstan. So that's what changed, folks. So you can uh, put the beginning of this anti-Christian movement right there at the turn of the previous century. 
Okay, so homeschooling evangelicals also value the reader's approach to teaching grammar and vocabulary through phonics rather than the whole word, word method, even though in his own time, McGuffey's approach would have been seen as innovative and a threat to traditional forms of educational authority. Well, that's not true. Phonics is far superior than whole word. If you don't know a, a syllable, you can't break the word down into its various syllables, each of which has meanings. So the richness of the meaning of a particular word, such as prestidigitation, to draw one out of a hat, presto, digit, fingers, action, activity, prestidigitation, is magic using your fingers and hands. The evangelical embrace of McGuffey is almost matched in intensity by the disdain of many historians, some of whom portray the readers as narrowly moralistic and conformist. Well, from what sector is the disdain? From what sector does this come from? The Jews, imposing on one and all a common Protestant Christian Lord, unquote, and rejecting Americans' diversity. Well, there was no diversity. America was a Christian country and it was primarily white. The other races were not allowed to vote. There was no diversity, and that's the way it should have stayed. Rather than reflect Americans' shared norms, what Americans' shared norms? <laughs> Modernism? The changes that the Jews have brought upon us? Rather than reflect Americans' shared norms, I mean, this is total rubbish, folks. The idea that America has always been a multiculti society, this is what this guy is actually arguing. And that Christianity was a, what, again, they criticized Christianity as being, uh, you know, colloquial, local, Midwest hicks, that sort of thing. And But where does this, all this stuff come from? Well, it comes from the universities, but who has been teaching this garbage in the universities? And there was no diversity of America in the 1900s, and for most part of the uh, first half of the 20th century, too. Again, this all goes back to the 1960s and the Cultural Revolution instituted by the Jews and their televangelists. And, of course, uh, revolutions in society such as the pill, the miniskirt, the bikini, all these things, free love, which is a communist idea, communism itself, socialism, all of the, oh yeah, the drug culture, boy, all that stuff came in the 1960s, folks. I was a child of the 60s. I remember those days well. I remember how my friends used to get high. And sometimes I would get high with them, but I wasn't doing it as often as they were. Because I was really interested in learning. (laughs) I was always in the top of my class, not just because I was smarter than most people, and uh, I really wasn't, but because I applied myself to education. I really wanted to understand. And my education was then Catholic. I went to a Catholic grade school, which uh, then he used the uh, not the look say method. They used phonics. So I guess you could blame McGuffey for phonics. So rather than reflect Americans' shared norms, others contend the readers aim to control the minds of working class Americans. So as if modern education is not doctrinaire and designed to brainwash people to socialism and Zionism and Talmudism. Quote, those who were rich and considered respectable exercise a kind of cultural control when they tried to regulate poorer classes, thoughts, and behaviors, even though such seemingly innocuous things as school textbooks. Now, how is that different from today? Who controls what's in textbooks today? If not, the super rich. <laughs> But the the super rich these days are communists and liberals and other Jews. So you see, this is classic liberalism that the author is uh, reflecting here. But what it proves is that America was a far different place, way more Christian in the 19th century. So this begs the question, what changed and who changed it? So I think from the opening paragraphs 
of this article, we're not going to get at the real truth here, but we're going to get propaganda that's favorable toward the Jews, liberalism, multiculturalism, race mixing, etc. The readers have been described as a conservative response to the American Revolution's egalitarian principles. The American Revolution did not have egalitarian principles. That's a lie. So this is the kind of garbage that's being taught to our students today. Hard work, uh, strong values, the work ethic, that's what made America great. Not multiculturalism. Because there are very few cultures outside of the white race that actually have the work ethic. Certainly not the Jews. They have the theft ethic. One scholar has even concluded that McGuffey's efforts to promote patriotism undermined American liberty by making Americans slaves to their nation. Now, what nation doesn't do that? What about the Israelis? Doesn't Judaism make Israelis slaves to that state? Whether revering or rejecting his work, McGuffey's fans and detractors both managed to miss the point of his original project. To find a middle ground a place where diverse Americans could come together around shared values in order to participate in common public institutions. That's false. There there was no diversity. America was white. And there was only one religion, Christianity. So this is total distortion of history. And this is Hedgehog Review, folks. Hedgehog Review. You can see that this is a disinfo website. Today, when the very project of public education is being called into question, as it should be, even at the highest levels of government, McGuffey's legacy merits reconsideration. Okay, so it doesn't look like the reconsideration is going to be very, very favorable to McGuffey. But it should be brought back up because we need to restore true Christianity to America. You know, I certainly doubt that that's going to happen because we're too close to the Judgment Day for this kind of a program to really take root. But this kind of information and the attempt to suppress and the successful suppression of McGuffey's readers is one of the major contributors to what's wrong with the world today, especially what's wrong with America. William McGuffey was an unlikely person to have made the American mind. Born in 1800 in Pennsylvania, he moved with his family to Connecticut's Western Reserve, today's Ohio, when he was two. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) Hold on, let me take a quick swig. Okay. As was typical for the time, his early education came from his parents. Oh, oh, we can't have that. We can't have parental rights against the state's intrusion into family affairs. We can't have that. He subsequently received tutoring from the Reverend William Wick, a local Presbyterian minister. Young McGuffey lost this source of instruction at the age of 14 when Wick died. Soon after that, he decided to form a subscription school, which he operated out of the back room of a livery stable in West Union, Ohio. Hmm. After teaching for for fees for several years, in 1818, he enrolled in an academy, a charter school offering advanced education in the arts and sciences that prepared him sufficiently to gain admission to Washington College in Pennsylvania. To help pay for his education, he interspersed attendance at college with spells of teaching, taking a position in a one-room schoolhouse in Paris, Kentucky. Once he finally earned his bachelor's degree, he was appointed professor of ancient languages at Miami University, Ohio, in 1826, where he quickly gained a reputation for strict discipline and religious conservatism. He also became involved with Ohio's vibrant circle of education reformers who aspired to improve America's public schools. Now that, to to me, is a red herring because a lot of these people were already socialists and perhaps McGuffey did not know 
what he was getting into when he tried to quote unquote reform America's educational system. No, he was already a conservative Christian and it didn't need to be reformed. In the 1820s, the idea that education was a public responsibility was a new one. Again, that was usually done by Christian schoolmasters. Such schooling as American children received had long been the responsibility of parents, but after the American Revolution, certain political leaders began to argue that a republic required educated citizens. Subsequently, be to ha, you don't get much more educated than the founding fathers, folks. You don't get much more educated than they were. They were self-taught. I think Jefferson was one of the few who actually attended a college, University of Virginia. But most of our founding fathers were primarily self-taught. And they were way smarter than politicians today. Way smarter. So this is not a good <laughs> vote of confidence for public education at all when, once you understand true history. Subsequently, between the 1820s and the Civil War, voters began approving the levying of state or local taxes to support schooling, rather than private funding of schoolmasters. By the onset of the Civil War in 1861, most northern states were offering free elementary education, and many southern states were moving in the same direction. Now, if public education were actually teaching the values of the parents of the children, which would be very conservative Christianity, then a public school might work if it was kept local and not centralized. It might work. But even there, as long as the Jews move into a society, they will take over every major institution and see to it that we all become Judaized. In 1821, Ohio passed a law encouraging citizens to form school districts and to raise local taxes to support education. A subsequent legislation boosted local and state support for the building of better schoolhouses and the hiring of teachers. By 1837, about 31% of Ohio's school-age population was enrolled, a proportion that increased to 52% by 1850, even as Ohio's population was quickly growing. McGuffey took part in these changes through his involvement with a network of reformers known as the College of Teachers. That The group included the textbook author Edward Mansfield, the Reverend Lyman Beecher, and his daughter Catherine Beecher, Catherine's brother-in-law Calvin Stowe, S-T-O-W-E, who married Harriet Beecher, was commissioned by the Ohio State Legislature to go to Europe to study its education systems and report back on his findings. Now, at this point in time, the schools of Europe were being very radically communized. Remember, and of course, the teachers, and this is where your petty bureaucracy comes from. These teachers felt and, and believed that they had more responsibility to indoctrinate the teacher, uh, the children of the parents than the parents had, okay? And this is doctrinaire, uh, teachering, <laughs> edu edu educating, uh, and typically the socialization of education across the board has always been very socialistic and communistic. And... It's gotten worse year after year after year. Members of the College of Teachers sought access to common schools for every child. McGuffey, like others in the group, was an educational progressive, but he believed that reform would never come unless Americans supported public schools. As he wrote in 1834, if democracy depended on education, if... <laughs> But who controls the educational system? That's the issue. If democracy depended on educated, virtuous citizens, then states must adopt immediately such measures as shall secure to all that information which is adequate to the correct discharge of the duties to which every individual may find himself called by the voice of his country, which is totally an anti-American view today, <laughs> all right? 
liberalism, socialism, communism, Jews, etc., hate this entire concept that there is even individualism. No, you're all bees in a hive, and the hive is the commissariat. But the common schools, McGuffey quickly realized, it needed better textbooks. In 1834, when Cincinnati publisher Truman and Smith saw an expanding new market in the nation's common schools and approached Catherine Beecher, she directed the company to McGuffey, who had become by then president of Cincinnati College. Okay, so his efforts to improve education were motivated by conservatism. However, I'm sure he was one of the few conservatives. The readers began appearing in 1836, and McGuffey would go on to write the first four in the original series. They were among the first generation of graded readers, each level offering more advanced readings and vocabulary than the prior ones. McGuffey continued to revise the readers into the 1850s, but by then he had moved on first to teach at Woodward College in Cincinnati, and then to to chair the Department of Moral Philosophy at the University of Virginia where he remained until his death in 1873. So he saw the entire Civil War. The original... And so... So he was a Southerner at that time, living in Virginia. But Cincinnati was also a hotbed of uh, the slaveocracy. It's the border, southern border of Ohio, across the Ohio River. It was the South. The original editions of the readers most truly reflect McGuffey's values and goals and what he took to be the purposes of public education. The Golden Rule and Civic Virtues is the next heading here. What do we find when we turn to those early readers? Many of McGuffey's selections provide stories that reinforce the Golden Rule. For example, in one story, a boy turns over a turtle. His friend asked, quote, what if you were a turtle and somebody should put you on your back, unquote. Even a turtle can feel. Real happiness did not come from pursuing superficial beauty or wealth, but by offering kindness. Oh, what's wrong with that? Do the schools teach that anymore? No, they have the, uh, what what they call that game, the, uh, where uh, kids are told that they're in a lifeboat. I think that's what they call it, the lifeboat game. And each child is asked or just told to select somebody to throw overboard because they've run, they're running out of food and water. So they have to throw one person overboard, okay, until there's only one child left. What, what kind of moral lesson does that teach? Real happiness did not come from pursuing superficial beauty or wealth, but by offering kindness. Yeah, absolutely. Very good. As McGuffey put it at the end of the first reader, always do to other children as you wish them to do unto you. Beautiful lesson. Absolutely beautiful. McGuffey also sought to encourage students to be patriotic citizens. Many selections invoked the American landscape and provided students guidance from famous speeches by both classical and contemporary models of civic virtues. There were selections about George Washington, the Marquis de Lafayette, the Cayuga leader, Chief Logan, as described by Thomas Jefferson. And the irresistible power of temptation. Far from encouraging unquestioning deference, the readers directed students to be vigilant and watch over their leaders. Oh, man. No, we can't have that. You can't question Joe Biden and Donald Trump. That's reserved for party operatives and whether you consider yourself liberal or conservative, communist or patriotic. McGuffey extolled Washington above all for his willingness to put the public good ahead of his own, a practice Washington and McGuffey hoped all Americans would emulate. Boy, those were the days, weren't they, folks? Those were the days. In short, the readers provided a moral education grounded in the golden rule and civic virtues. For us today, however, McGuffey's reliance on biblical passages and stories is striking. Yeah, for commies, for secularists, for Judeo-Christians, 
And Jews have never appreciated this trend anyway, teaching Christian stories. Even in his own time, some Americans raised questions about whether his book series relied too heavily on the Protestant Bible. Oh man, we can't have that. Although schools in McGuffey's era were less likely to begin classes with a prayer or biblical readings than schools in the later 19th or early 20th centuries, McGuffey made no apology for using scriptural passages in a Christian country. He believed, however, that the Bible should be taught as part of general education and not as a devotional. The Bible is the only book in the world treating of ethics and religion which is not sectarian. Every sect claims that book has authority for its peculiar views. He carefully chose selections from passages that did not involve any of the questions and debate about the various denominations of evangelical Christians. In short, his goal was to draw from the Protestant majority's background religious beliefs by using a widely shared book without causing unnecessary division. Very good. Furthermore, he practiced the golden rule that he preached. According to one scholar, if certain passages in the readers were deemed particularly offensive to Catholics or Jews, McGuffey excised them. Well, if that's the case, how did how did Henry Ford become anti-Jew a Jew by reading the McGuffey readers? Oh, because he quoted the Bible that criticizes Jews for the things they did. McGuffey was in a secret in a sense, correct. Of course he was. In his time, most Americans were Christians, with Protestants composing the majority and Catholics making up a growing percentage. The schools reflected this background culture. Still, McGuffey took a progressive position for his time. He embraced what was called non-sectarianism, the position that public schools could draw from religion without promoting any particular sectarian perspective. Now, of course, he was only referring to Christianity, because there was no such thing as Islam in America in those days. Catholicism was just coming over from Europe, and Judaism was still a very, very small sect. And America was founded as a Christian nation, all 13 colonies having in their voting principles that you must be a Christian in order to hold office. And he gets his non-sectarian viewpoint from the U.S. Constitution, which does not make any particular denomination a ruler over religion in America. The First Amendment says, Congress shall have no authority over religion whatsoever. Okay, But the only religion at that time was Christianity. And so you can't pretend that this means Judaism, Islam, Shintoism... Excuse me, Hinduism, etc. You cannot possibly argue that and be historically accurate. McGuffey was, yeah, he was correct. Not just in a sense, he was correct. So, advocates of non-sectarianism believed that non-sectarian schools would welcome diverse Americans under a common umbrella while continuing to teach values. Well, diverse Christian Americans. Because, as the McGuffey readers point out, they teach Christianity, a non-sectarian version of, of Christianity, but it's still Christianity. This perspective is best reflected in the words offered by Horace Mann, the first secretary to the Massachusetts Board of Education, who is considered one of the founding fathers of public education in the United States. To Mann, that's M-A-N-N, Non-sectarianism was to religion what non-partisanship was to politics. Schools must not embrace one political party over another. Well, that's what they don't, they don't do that today. The vast majority of schools are ultimately ultra-leftist. But schools should prepare young people to enter public life, yeah, by having a broad education. The same was true of moral life. If schools could teach citizenship while avoiding the tempest of political strife, they could also teach religion upon the most broad and general grounds. Yeah, and let, let the children, once they grow up, decide which denomination they want to join, or join none whatsoever. Not everyone agreed with this. Roman Catholics pointed out the implicit and explicit biases against Catholicism in common school readers, including McGuffey's. Even drawing texts from the Protestant Bible threatened Catholic doctrine. <laughs> yeah, well, that's their problem. 
America was founded as a Protestant nation, with the possible exception of Maryland. Catholic leaders in the 19th century argued for public support for parochial education, convinced that Catholic children's faith was not only disrespected but threatened by what historian Diane Rabich has called the sectless Protestantism of the common schools. Well, isn't that good, sectless? Why have sects? Just teach the Bible. Just teach what the Bible says, which very, very few churches even do today. If many Catholics worried that the schools were too Protestant, many Protestants worried that the schools were not Protestant enough. Did the Catholics ever worry whether their schools were too Catholic? As one historian of the common schools has put it, advocates of non-sectarianism such as McGuffey and Mann sought, quote, religion rooted in no community of faith. No, no, you can't divorce religion from the community of faith. This is broad-spectrum Christianity, designed not to offend a particular religion. But remember, America was founded as a Protestant nation, not as a Catholic nation. The uh, founding fathers still had almost within living memory, and yeah, yeah, actually within living memory, the depredations of the Roman Catholic Church against heretics in Europe, And the same thing went for Calvinism in Europe. And certainly King James, uh, and, you know, he was a, a, a dictator as well. So you had no shortage of dictators as uh, posing as leaders of religion. And that's actually what brought the pilgrims to America because they rejected King James and they brought with them the Geneva Bible. They utterly rejected the King James Bible, and America was founded on the principles of the Geneva Bible, which taught that no king is above the law. And King James did not believe that. He believed in the so-called divine right of kings, which meant he was above the Bible. Some evangelicals in McGuffey's time condemned non-sectarians' effort to raise such a broad tent. They worried that teaching the Bible alongside other secular readings reduced it to a moral text rather than the Word of God. In response, evangelicals established Sunday schools around the country. By 1832, over 8,000 schools were associated with the American Sunday School Union, which, in its words, challenged public schools' efforts to diffuse knowledge without religion. Well, that certainly was not McGuffey's intention, is to be without religion. But, as I said earlier, the people he was associated with, those that's the aim that they had. And if he had stayed with it long enough, he might have realized that, that, that these people were perverting his personal ideals. In short, McGuffey sought a middle way between Catholic demands for separate schools and some Protestant desire for explicitly sectarian education. So, Well, there's no reason why you can't have both. However, the Catholic schools have always been anti-American or anti-Protestant. They always have been. And very much anti-Catholic because Catholicism comes from the Pope, who they consider to be the reigning authority on religion. How is that not sectarian? Totally sectarian. And it's supremacist. Because I remember very clearly sitting in class in the Catholic school that you had to be Catholic or you can't be saved. That's what the Catholic Church taught. Probably still teaches that. Next heading, Readers as Remedy. In the wake of Charles Darwin's Origin of Species, 1859, conflicts between the demands of religion and science roiled American public education. For example, in the infamous Scopes trial, advocates of evolution squared off against those who proclaimed the final authority of the Bible. These tensions never went away. Well, you don't hear that anymore. Today's Judeo churches don't confront evolution. They don't confront it at all. And as a matter of fact, the the debate that exists, certainly among Theologians of mainstream variety and evolutionists 
uh, gives you a black and white. It's either the, the, the point of view of evangelicals, which means they believe in a literal six-day creation week, versus evolutionists who believe it took millions and millions and millions of years for a, 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 a fin to turn into a hand, <laughs> right? But, of course, they have no way of proving that that ever happened, and it didn't happen. With the onset of the Cold War in the late 1940s, Americans sought to highlight their country's Christian heritage and ideals in contrast to, quote-unquote, godless communism. Yeah. Across the country, it says county here, but it should be country, school districts sought to find ways to offer religious education and to recognize America's dependence on God. Thank you very much. A 1960 survey found that about 88% of public schools had Christmas celebrations, 42% had Bible reading, and 33% had prayer in homeroom. But in the early 1960s, there we go, 1960s, as part of the broader civil rights revolution, subversion, actually revolution is a good term too, American courts enhanced their protection of Americans' religious freedom under the First Amendment. No, they didn't, unless you want to categorize sectar- or uh, secular humanism as a religion. Atheistic communism as a religion, but, but communism is taught as if it were science, which it is not, okay? Religious minorities asked the court to protect their children from state-sponsored religion in the schools. And the Supreme Court agreed. Now, I don't think this is actually the case, whether this was religious. Maybe this was Jews who didn't want their, if they couldn't afford to send their own children to, uh, you know, kinder yeshiva. In two major decisions, Engel versus Vitale and Abington versus Shemp, the court outlawed both Bible reading and school-directed prayer How is that protecting the rights of religious liberty as as pertaining to the First Amendment, folks? By outlawing certain religions. Never outlawed Judaism. But of course, the Jews have their own private schools. Yet Jews have influenced these decisions to outlaw Christianity. Now, if the Jews were really interested in promoting the Bible... Why would they oppose Bible reading in the schools? Many, if not most, Americans still wanted a religious component to public education. Yeah, all of them, virtually all of them, except the the emerging left wing. All kinds of Americans, white and black, left and right, north and south, Protestant and Catholic, condemned the court's decisions. So who brought these lawsuits? Engel versus Vitale and Abington versus Shemp. I'll bet these were Jew-promoted court cases. The rulings, they argued, did not reflect public will and American culture. By taking God out of the classroom, schools would impose secularism upon a religious people. Amen. And that is what happened. Okay? So, folks, uh, I'm almost done with this, so I'm not going to, unless I do a follow-up uh, on more on McGuffey's readers, and uh, you know, how important they were to Christian America. I may conclude this article next week and start another one. But so far, uh, this is a fairly accurate uh, representation of McGuffey's readers. However, it, uh, it has a decidedly liberal tone and uh, does not convey history accurately. It's uh, basically applying modern ideas to Christian America which do, do not really represent Christian America, because there was, there was no multiculturalism in those days. You know, the author speaks of you know, values, broad-scale values. America did not have broad... It was a white country. It was a Christian country, primarily a Protestant. And there was no you know, uh, equality of religions, equality of uh, education, equality of socialism, versus republicanism. There was not that kind of diversity in America. That all came in the 20th century and most of it in the late 
20th century. However, the seeds were sown for this type of subversion in the early 20th century when the Jews and their, their foundations began influencing education in America and began, even more importantly, influencing teachers in America. So, that will conclude today's show. You know that public education is a crock, is nothing but atheistic communism, the exact thing that Americans in the 1950s and 60s were afraid of, the public schools have become. Thanks for listening. Praise Yahweh, pass the ammunition. See you all tomorrow. Take care. Yahweh bless. Restoration Hour with Pastor Eli James.